<laughs> so yeah, it's Matthew 4, verse 12 through 22. And let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be with your body, with the church. Uh, that has so deeply blessed us uh, when we came here needing and looking for discipleship and uh, just your faithfulness in that and the leaders that you sovereign, in your sovereign hand have put over this church and in the, the family of God that you surrounded us with. And thank you for the privilege to be with them again. Thank you for your word. God, I pray you'd open our eyes to see in this text what you would have us to see. I pray you would enable me by your spirit to uh, proclaim what is true, that you'd lift our eyes to see you, to see that Christ is all, that you are worthy of all. We thank you um, as we have just celebrated Christmas for you coming and dying uh, for us. Let me pray this in your name. Amen. Christ is all. This is the big picture when we see according to reality, when we see clearly, is that Christ is all. But we so easily lose sight of this big picture. We so easily uh, lose sight of the reality of the promises of God, of God's sovereign hand in our lives, of God's goodness. Um, I feel like there's few things that make you more quickly lose awareness of that than like traveling on an airplane. Um, or, uh, as we can all relate, I'm sure it's sometimes the busyness of the Christmas season or expectations met or unmet with family. It is so easy to, for our eyes to be drawn away from the big picture, to lose awareness of what truly is happening and get caught up in our own little world. Our, own, our eyes turn downwards towards ourselves or towards our immediate surroundings or towards the world. So my goal in this sermon as we look at this passage, is that we'd lift our eyes towards Jesus, that we'd see that Christ is all. And we'd see not just in this passage, but as Matthew does, even here in Matthew pointing us towards Isaiah, that we'd see this big picture in the whole story of Scripture. That we'd see the story of God graciously restoring mankind to himself in Jesus Christ. So as we look at this sermon just briefly here over the next uh, little bit, I want to make three points. I want to draw three points from Matthew 4, 12 through 22. One, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and promises. Two, that Jesus proclaims the gospel. He comes proclaiming the gospel and bringing the gospel. And three, that Jesus calls us to join him in this redemptive work. So follow along with me if you have your Bibles open in verse 12. In the first section, Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament promises and prophecies. And now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the ter ter territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. You might recognize this from Isaiah 9, where uh, you as a church have been walking through the last four weeks. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, or nations, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So Jesus here has begun his ministry, just begun his ministry, being baptized, being tempted, 
in the first half of Matthew 4 here, and now he's launching into his ministry. And Matthew points us towards that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, that he is light in darkness. In, in, in a greater way, not just of the specific prophecy in Isaiah 9, but of all the promises and prophecies throughout the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the promised one. And to see that, I want to spend the majority of our time this morning on this point, Jesus fulfilling the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. And, and to do that right, I think we need to zoom out and try to see the big picture here from a 50,000-foot level and walk through the story of Scripture starting with the beginning, where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was desolate. It was void. It was not inhabited. The Spirit of God hovering over that creation, the Spirit of God hovered over or overshadowed the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And out of his Trinitarian goodness and love and beauty overflowing out of that. He created the world. He created the stars, the earth, landscapes, lakes, oceans. Not because he's a God who needed that. Have you ever thought of that? He didn't create this beauty because he needed that. He is beautiful in himself, but he created it because he's good. He did not create mangoes as we got to enjoy or, or raspberries because he needed food. Why did he make it? Because he's good. Then he created as the crown of his creation, mankind. Created in his image, in the image of God, to enjoy him, to worship him, to display his glory as they take dominion over creation, to display the glory and beauty of God in this theater that he created. He formed man. We read in Genesis 2 that he formed man with his hands and he breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living creature. We see the intimacy that God created man and the intimacy of of God's union with man, God dwelling with man, which is really the only way for mankind to display the glory of God because God is so uniquely glorious. He's holy. He's otherly. He's set apart, beautiful, that is impossible to display him accurately without him helping us in that, without God shining through us in his glory to display that. And so in that, our purpose, our very life, as mankind was wrapped up in dwelling with God, the union mankind held with God. And God gave man the first commission to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to fill the earth with his glory, that the earth would be filled with those who enjoy and worship him. But mankind, Adam and Eve, as we know, they were tempted to doubt and disobey God by the devil who appeared as a serpent. They were tempted to disbelieve the truth of God, to make a way for themselves, to decide for themselves what was true. And they shifted from accepting God as the authority to when the enemy said, did God really say they doubted? You shall not surely die, the serpent said. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And in that one disobedience, that one disobedience, God says, you're out. And he cursed the world. He cursed mankind. Mankind 
experienced immediately death in the truest form, alienation from the life of God. Like a flashlight without batteries, if you'll permit an illustration here, mankind was totally unable to perform his intended function. Mankind without God dwelling in him is hopeless to display the glory of God, is lost. But in that curse, in that swift judgment from God, there was a glimmer of hope where God promised from the offspring of the woman one who would crush the head of the serpent. God would have been right to wipe mankind off the face of the earth, but he extends their life in his grace. He kills an animal, spilling its blood, clothes them with the skin of the animal, and sends them out of the garden. We then see Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, where we see there's a way now to approach God. But they knew they ought to bring a sacrifice to God. And from Hebrews 11, we know Abel, by faith, offered the better sacrifice. He offered the firstborn of his flock. He slaughtered that before God, and God accepted that offering. But Cain, Cain knew of God. He was not ignorant of these things. But he approached God in his own way. God said, you're out. I, don't, I won't accept that. Cain kills Abel. We see the deterioration of mankind, again, separated from God. Genesis 6, the population grew wickedness against God. God, in his righteousness, would not tolerate this, and he promised to bring judgment. Noah, by faith, he obeys God. He believes the warnings of God and the instruction of God, even though it might not make sense, even though he does not see fully this promise of judgment, of rain, of a flood, build an ark. He accepts by faith and he obeys. And in that, he's considered righteous. And God condemns the faithless of the world, bringing an almost unthinkable, catastrophic judgment. You think about the flood against the world, but graciously providing a way of escape for Noah and his family. We see Abraham called to leave everything, to go to a land that God promised, and God promising him that I will make of you a nation. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham, by faith, believes God and goes. We see God testing Abraham then. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains where I shall tell you. And Abraham, in this disposition of faith, God, you require this. I trust you. I will do it. You promised a nation through Isaac. We read in Hebrews 11 that Abraham believed that God would even raise Isaac up from the dead, but he would in faith obey God. And in the act of sacrificing, God provides a substitute sacrifice. Moriah, the mountain where this happened, is Jerusalem. God says that by faith, in this faith, in this disposition of faith, Abraham is counted as righteous before God, finding favor with God. Years later, the nation of Israel is enslaved in Egypt, and God provides salvation. He miraculously delivers them, bearing them, providing salvation through the blood of a lamb that's spilt and put on the door. We see in the sacrificial system that God lays out in the first five books of the Bible, we see that it's centered on this day of atonement, where there would be two goats. One goat would be killed as Blood spill is a sin offering. The second goat, the priest would lay both his hands on his head, confess the sins of the people. That goat would be led off outside the camp, cast away out of sight. 
And every year the nation of Israel would do this. As a reminder of the gravity of sin and the requirement for a blood sacrifice that death was required to cover for sin. Moses, sent by God to lead the people of Israel through this time, he was a prophet, he was a priest among them, but God promised another prophet that would come. David, later anointed king, yet in his failures, failures we see that God promises to establish another king whose kingdom would never end. Throughout this, this time, God sends prophets, prophets who would warn of judgment and yet give hope. And we see additional glimpses of who this one would be, born of a virgin, called Emmanuel, God with us. From Bethlehem, a light to those who walk in darkness, as we see in Isaiah 9. So all of this in the Old Testament is unfolding. And then after years of waiting, an angel appears to Mary in Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she tried to discern what was going on, and the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and he shall, you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. How can this be, Mary says, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's the same language used in the creation account, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And God says, let there be light. I think about the rest of the world that next day after Christmas and how there's likely almost no awareness of the significance of what had just happened. Jesus being born into the world I think of Mary, who found favor with God. We see that she believed God. Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, says in Luke 1.45, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what is spoken to her from the Lord. And we see all of heaven. I just imagine all of heaven craning their eyes to look upon this scene where the creator of the world condescends and is born. We see a crack in that veil as the shepherds are out watching their sheep, and the angels sing, Glory to God, peace among those with whom he's pleased. We see later John, as Jesus walks up, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. Significance of that statement. Lambs were for sacrifice. And sacrifice for our sins. And this is Jesus, the creator of the universe, who condescended to enter as a baby. This is the one who's promised to crush the head of the serpent in his life and in his death, a sacrifice, acceptable to God, who brought for us salvation from the catastrophic judgment and wrath against our wicked rebellion against God. He is the blessing from the line of Abraham through which all the nations, the families of the earth would be blessed. He's the substitute sacrifice provided by God. He's the blood spilled for our salvation to save us from the enslaving power of sin. 
His death was for our deliverance. He's the one upon whose head all our sins are put, who bore our iniquities. He's the one who's gone outside the camp to carry our sins. He's the true prophet promised to Moses. He's the true priest, the one who brings the final sacrifice on our behalf. He's he's the true king, the one who paid the full price, who rose triumphant, now sits enthroned in heaven, above all, the king of kings, whose kingdom will never end. This is Jesus in all its weight and glory and beauty. This is the Jesus that Matthew is telling us of in this passage. He's saying the promised one, the one we're told of in Isaiah, the one we're told us told of in this whole story of Scripture, this is him. The light in the darkness, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting, the prince of peace. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. It's through him that mankind is restored to their intimacy with God. It's through him that mankind, being alienated from God, being separated from God, now can regain that intimacy with God, that relationship with God that restores man to his original created purpose, to walk with God and display his glory. This is the gospel. So Jesus, in the next verse in our passage, in verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He's the one that proclaims this good news and brings this good news. Eugene Peterson says, Repentance is a rejection that is also an acceptance. A leaving that develops into an arriving. It's a no to the world that is a yes to God. I used to wonder why at some points in Scripture we read, Repent and just repent. And sometimes it said, Believe or have faith or even those who hope upon Him, who those who place their hope on Him will be saved. Because it all captures this same idea of turning from one thing and placing our hope on another, of repenting, turning, of placing our faith in the truth claim of God, that disposition that says, I am a man, you are God, you define what is truth. What you require, I will accept that. I will submit myself to that. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And those who believe, we read in John, have eternal life. Those who repent and believe stand at peace before God, Romans 5, We are justified by faith. We're reunited with him. The spirit of God dwells within us. This is the glory of the gospel, that we are not just forgiven, but that God dwells in us. That again, the breath of God, as at creation, the spirit of God is within us. We're united with him. Jesus proclaims and brings the gospel. And third, Jesus commissions mankind to join him in his redemptive purpose. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. To those who believe in Christ, who believe this gospel, who believe upon the person and work of Christ, that this Christ, this Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that's promised. We can walk in the divine purpose that God created us to fulfill. And this is what Jesus is calling 
the disciples to, and this is what he calls us to do as image bearers, to enjoy and worship God and to display this glory throughout the world, now being restored in right relationship with God. Jesus says, follow me. Notice that this is wrapped up in being with him. He's not saying just go. He's saying, I will be with you to the end of the age. He's saying, follow me, come with me on the same path as him, a path that involves suffering. We're not above our master. But he set his face towards the joy that was set before him, and we do the same. We have joy now in that future joy of the eternity we will spend with him. And he points us towards being fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. This points back to that first commission, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. That's why I think it would have been no surprise to hear the Great Commission to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to every creature, to go and make disciples of all nations, because this is the heart of God from the beginning, that the earth would be filled with worshipers of God, that the earth would be filled with those who enjoy him and who display his glory. And that is our call. That is why we are aiming to bring the gospel to the unreached. That's why you live here, to bring the gospel to those around you. That's why we exist, that God has called us to join him and the redemptive purpose, God graciously redeeming men to himself through Jesus Christ. So this is the big picture. Christ is all, our Savior, the promised serpent-crushing Redeemer. His life and work are the greatest news. This is the true gospel. We're called to join him in this work. What else would we want to live for? What's a deeper joy that we could enjoy? What's a, a more spectacular glory that we could proclaim. And Jesus says, follow me. That demands a total reorientation of life. Like I said several months ago, like what God is calling you to is not to pack up your bags and move overseas. He's calling you to total allegiance to him. He's calling you to lay everything on the table. Say, yes, Lord, I will follow you. Make me a fisher of men. Use me to advance your kingdom as you would will. Our very purpose here is to see the kingdom of God advance here and throughout the world. Consider how that would look here. Consider if there is need for reorientation in your life here. Consider, too, the need in the world, millions, tens of millions, who are outside of access to the gospel, who due to a geographical barrier or a linguistic barrier have zero chance, and many more with almost zero chance of hearing the gospel in their life. Would you consider going? Would you consider praying? Would you consider giving to that cause to see the nations of the earth reached for Christ? Maybe you haven't heard or understood this Jesus. Maybe you you haven't grasped this gospel or submitted to it. And I just call you, will you humble yourself? Will you humble yourself to look at this truth claim from God that Jesus came as the final sacrifice for our sins and his offer of salvation, and to say, yes, God, I will turn and repent and accept that as truth. Repent and believe. Humble yourself. Accept this free gift of God. Christ is all. He's worthy of our all. And that is uh, my goal in this passage, is just to lift our eyes towards that truth. So let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the glorious story 
of Scripture. I thank you for the way that you present the truth to us in Scripture, from creation through Christ. I pray that our hearts would be stirred to enjoy you and your gospel in a deeper way, that you'd use your word here um, to cut into us, to expose our motives, to expose sin where there is sin, to encourage us where we're on the right track, to give our, to give our all, to follow you, see your kingdom advanced for your glory. And I pray this in your name. Amen.